good day. You are listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now bring you Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism with Roy Showman. Hi, this is Roy Showman, and welcome once again to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around, that celebrates the fulfillment, the completion, the full realization of all of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. Well, I know it sounds corny for me to say, but I'm actually very excited about the topic of today's show, and I hope you'll uh, forgive me my my uh, uh, inadequacy to properly address the topic. But basically, the topic is the following. Um, it sounds like it's several different topics, but you'll see it's all woven together. It's the origin of the four Gospels. It is when they were written. It is in what language they were written and how we know when they were written and in what language they were written and what that has to do with Jesus being the Jewish Messiah and the Catholic Church being the continuation of Judaism after the coming of the Jewish Messiah because my intention during today's show is to establish, I am 100% convinced, of course, being convinced is up to you, but um, I am 100% convinced that the four Gospels were all written within about 40 years of the crucifixion, and that um, at least the synoptics, if not all four, at least the three first Gospels were actually written originally in Hebrew. I'm using the word Hebrew at the moment to include Aramaic, but were written in either Hebrew or Aramaic. But I actually uh, think I can substantiate that they were written in literally Hebrew rather than Aramaic. And of course, that's only logical since Jesus was the Jewish Messiah and the first Christians were Jews. St. Peter was a Jew. St. Paul was a Jew. Matthew, Mark, and John were Jews. Uh, Luke was not. I believe. I believe that he was a Gentile. I could have that wrong, but I'm pretty sure. I know that he was a Greek. But in any case, um, that Luke was working from a um, Hebrew source when he wrote his gospel um, also. So anyway, that's kind of the outline for today's show. Now, why is this, why is this interesting? Why is it important? Well, if any of you um, have, have studied the topic at all in a conventional context such as a normal college or university or even seminary including Catholic seminary you will probably have been taught that the Gospels uh, including the first Gospel could not possibly have been written before about 70 AD and in gen generally one is taught that they're taught they were written perhaps between 120 and 150 AD in other words you know somewhere around 90 to 150 years after the death of Jesus. This is very convenient for those who want to dismiss the truth of Jesus and the truth of the Gospels and the truth of God, in fact. It fits in very well with the modernist, rationalist, there is no nothing supernatural in the world point of view. Because obviously, if the story of Jesus was first written down 100 years after he died, there was plenty of time for it to become myths and lost in the mists of history and for followers of his to exaggerate and then tell the story and it gets exaggerated even more and so forth. But 
if in fact they were written during the lifetime of people who had experience of Jesus and what he did, then, hey, wait a minute, they, they must be true, because otherwise the people who are hearing them would have known they're not true. Uh, they, could no long, they could no more be fictionalized than um, what's history of about 30 or 40 years ago, let's say, than the uh, Reagan's administration could be fictionalized. Uh, so anyway, so of course if someone wants to dismiss Christianity, the, they almost are forced to say that the Gospels were written long after true, long after the death of Jesus, let's say. Furthermore, the Gospels, I think we all know, at least three of them, uh, I'm not 100% sure about the Gospel according to John, but at least three of them foretell the destruction of the Temple in Jerusalem. And the destruction of the Temple in Jerusalem happened about 70 AD. So obviously the Gospels must have been written after 70 AD, because how could Jesus have known that the temple was going to be destroyed? Unless, oh, wait a minute, he was God, in which case, of course, he would know the future. So you see again that if the Gospels really were written 10 or 20 or 30 years after the crucifixion, then there's a problem. It means that Jesus really knew the future. And, of course, the modern contemporary um, official party line narrative is that Jesus may have been a great leader, he may have been a great rabbi, he may have been this tremendous spiritual figure, but of course he wasn't God incarnate. So anyway, that's all by way of background. So um, I am going to start, <laughs> I'm going to start by reading a, a very beautiful essay by a Catholic biblical scholar of uh, French origin who teaches in Belarus. And you'll see where I'm going. But she kind of summarizes the situation. Okay. Uh, let's be straightforward. I believe the Gospels to be direct testimonies that tell real and non-mythic or symbolic facts. I do not believe in it because of my faith, but because I have rational, scientific, carefully researched reasons to do so. Indeed, we who affirm the absolute historicity of the Gospels are now only a small minority. Let's examine the different aspects of this situation. And by the way, I know this is true because I, I went to, I went to, uh, I sat in at a Jesuit seminary in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where there was no question that the professors, very famous Jesuit Bible scholars, did not take the Bible seriously, did not take the truth of the Gospels in the way we would consider truth. And I actually had a fight. <laughs> I fight a lot. I had a fight with a bishop in New England. I won't name where. And I had a fight with the head of a department at Boston College, a Catholic theologian at Boston College. And uh, the, I had the same fight with both of them because I believed that Jesus literally resurrected from the tomb, and the tomb was empty. And both the bishop and this department head at Boston College argued that no, the uh, disciples had some kind of subjective resurrection experience that led them to have faith in Jesus, but that it wasn't actually a physical 
resurrection. So what this author of this article is saying, I definitely know to be true. Continuing, should the supernatural in the Gospels be simply denied? The resolution of differences regarding the dating, origins, authors, and nature of the Gospels lies in this interrogation. Should they be treated like any ordinary text for which the authenticity of the facts it contains is usually admitted? Or should they, by exception, be systematically denied what is in them, the supernatural, even when all other explanations have failed? In other words, and I think this is the heart of the matter, if Christianity is true, the supernatural aspects of the Gospels really happened. The miracles of Jesus really happened. The resurrection really happened. Uh, he really foretold the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. It really happened. If one wants to think that stuff didn't happen, one has to say the Gospels are not historically true, and therefore they would not have been written by eyewitnesses of what happened, and they would not have been written during the lifetime of eyewitnesses of what had happened. Continuing. Um... The oldest Gospels that have reached us are written in Greek, the international language during Christ's time. In the Holy Land, the commonly spoken language is Aramaic and the sacred language is Hebrew. Some specialists are convinced Hebrew was also spoken, while others think it was only written, but this does not matter. I'm going to interject something here. The foremost, the world's foremost expert on the language of the of the um, Qumran scrolls, of the Dead Sea Scrolls, says the Dead Sea Scrolls establish without a doubt that Hebrew was the spoken language in that community. And for that reason and other reasons, he concludes that it is extremely unlikely that the uh, Gospels, I have to step back a minute, both Hebrew and Aramaic are what's called Semitic languages. They come from, uh, both Arabs and Jews are Semites. Uh, so they're both Semitic languages. Um, there is, There are people who think that the Gospels were, yes, written in Semitic language, but rather than being Hebrew, it was Aramaic. Uh, I will, if I have time in the show, say some of the very strong arguments why the evidence points to them having been written in Hebrew rather than Aramaic. Um, continuing, in AD 70, an event occurred that in both human and religious terms has been considered the most loathsome by Jews ever since that time, the fall and destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem by the Romans. Most of its inhabitants were killed, the rest were deported or scattered. Had the Gospels been written in Greek, it could have been at any time. They could have been written in 150 AD in Greek. But if, on the other hand, they were first written in Hebrew, it is almost inevitable that they would have been written before the destruction of the temple. Because after the destruction of the temple, there would have been no reason to write them in Hebrew because there was no Hebrew-speaking community, so to speak. There was no Hebrew-speaking world. The Jews had been scattered, and they were living among non-Hebrew speakers. So the um, evidence that the Gospels were written in Hebrew or Aramaic 
would be indirect evidence that they were written before the fall of the temple. Continuing, if even one of the Gospels had been written before 70 AD, the witnesses of Christ's life, miracles, death, and resurrection being still alive would guarantee the authenticity of the account. They would have not let the deception go if the facts supposed to have happened among them had not taken place. On the other hand, if those four Gospels originated after the destruction of the Jerusalem in 70, all possible oversights, mistakes, forgeries, etc., intended additions or omissions may be considered. That is why the exegete's discussion on both the date and the original language of the Gospels are so contentious. On these issues depend, indirectly but certainly, the degree of trust the Gospels can be granted. In other words, obviously, they are much more trustworthy if they were actually written by the eyewitnesses who claimed to have written them. So, um, okay, now some of the evidence for how early they were written. Um, some seven, 25 years ago, but I, this was written probably about 20 years ago, so sometime probably about 40 years ago, Father Jose O'Gallagan, a Jesuit, identified a papyrus written in Greek which was found in cave number seven in Qumran as being a fragment of St. Mark's Gospel and another papyrus from the same cave as being a fragment of 1 Timothy. Nobody has ever questioned the fact that these caves were closed and sealed up in 68 AD. Therefore, their content must be dated before that date of 68 AD. Okay, this, this is worth digesting. Nobody questions that the Dead Sea Scrolls found in Qumran were hidden there and sealed up there in 68 AD. And yet, fragments of those scrolls can contain a passage from St. Mark's Gospel and another fragment from the same cave as being part of the first letter to Timothy. Therefore, the first letter to Timothy had been written before 68 AD, and St. Mark's Gospel, at least part of it, had been written before 68 AD. Um, then there are also many, many, many um, church, I shouldn't say many, 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 but a number of church fathers who um, attested to the early date. I'll, I'll, I'll say that for later, actually. The early dates of the writing of the Gospels. Um, I'll, I'll continue with the article that I'm reading for the moment. Um, in addition to this uh, archaeological evidence from the Qumran caves, we also have the philological <laughs> Is that a word? I think it is a word, philological evidence. That is, the study of words evidence. Concerning the philological research, two specialists thoroughly analyzed the language of the Gospels. Father Jean Carmignac, one of the greatest experts in biblical studies in the world, and recognized as foremost in the world in the knowledge of Qumran Hebrew, and Claude Tremontant, lecturer at the Institute of France who taught at Sorbonne University. Uh, he's also the author of the Old Testament Hebrew to Greek Dictionary. 
this is a little bit. They're both basically absolutely top world-class scholars, undoubtedly two of the top six or eight uh, scholars in the world with respect to the Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek and archaeology of Jesus' time. They both demonstrated that the Greek language used in the gospel, in the, in the gospels, all of the gospels, uh, was translated from Hebrew or Aramaic. Now, to be fair, um, Jean Carmignac did not address St. John's Gospel, so he only established that the underlying, that the Greek of the Synoptic Gospels, Synoptic refers to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were uh, originally written in Hebrew and translated into Greek. Um, Tremontan also studied St. John's Gospel and came to the same conclusion for all four Gospels. Um, they all they both established that they were translated from Hebrew or Aramaic. They both consider the whole of the Gospels. Well, I'll, I'll skip a few passages. Uh, Father Carmignac points out semitisms of thought, vocabulary, syntax, style, composition, transmission, translation, and even multiple semitisms. What is a semitism? I hope to get to that today. Um, basically, they are, they are things in the text of the gospel that reflect uh, Semitic language structure, Semitic vocabulary, uh, Semitic uh, writing and penmanship, actually, uh, Semitic uh, syntax, and so forth. In other words, the, the structure of sentences is not, for instance, just as an example, the structure of sentences in many cases is not a structure that would occur to a Greek speaker. The words are in the wrong order and so forth, and, and they're wrong forms used. However, it is the natural sentence structure for somebody speaking Hebrew. Anyway, we'll get to some of that, I hope. If not, some of it may have to wait for a later show. Who knows? Um, for each case, he supplies many examples. Uh, Tremontant gives a few examples. We'll give a few examples from Tremontant. In Luke 9, 51, chapter 9, verse 51, the Greek text reads, he fixed his face to go to Jerusalem. This is Jesus. He fixed his face to go to Jerusalem, which is a pretty odd turn of phrase, and it makes no sense in Greek or English. However, it is a frequent phrase in the Old Testament in Hebrew, and it means he firmly decided. He firmly decided. You see, it's the normal Hebrew phrase for he firmly decided. And yet, in Greek and in English, it's a rather silly construction of the phrase. But if it was originally written in Hebrew, it would have been written, he fixed his face to go to Jerusalem. And then when a later translator translated it, he would have, if he wanted to respect the original language, he would have perhaps translated it word for word, coming up with, he fixed his face to go to Jerusalem. Uh, by the way, as an aside, this is a very common situation because Hebrew is very, very poor in abstractions. It uses physical, concrete things f to represent abstractions. It's very typical. For instance, in Hebrew does not say, in his presence. Hebrew says before his face. When Moses met God, for instance, on the top of Mount Sinai, he wasn't in the presence of God. He was in front of the face of God. 
Faces something physical and concrete, and you can be in the front of it. Presence is a more abstract concept. So the fact that Hebrew would say, in order to express the thought he firmly decided, would use the words he fixed his face, is very typical of Hebrew. Anyway, uh, Tremontan gives many such examples and idiomatic expressions. He also points out the following passage in St. John, chapter 5, verse 2. Um, St. John's text being regarded as the latest and most recent of the four Gospels. In other words, it's the newest of the four Gospels. Um, that St. John says there is in Jerusalem, next to the Sheep Gate, a pool called Bethesda. He uses the present tense. There is in Jerusalem, not there was in Jerusalem. If it was written after the destruction of Jerusalem, it would have been more correct to say there was in Jerusalem rather than there is in Jerusalem. Similarly, um, Jesus, of course, uh, predicts the destruction of the temple. I mentioned that. But uh, Tremontant points out something else, which is if, in fact, the Gospels were written after the destruction of the temple, it would have been very natural for the authors when they quote Jesus as saying before the destruction of the temple that it would be destroyed, if they then pointed out, and verily, this came about. In other words, if they then said, and see, Jesus prophesied this correctly, it was destroyed. They don't do that. They don't say that the prophecy came true. Uh, Tremontant concludes from this that it's most likely that it was written before it came true. As Tremontant calls it, whoever forged the the Gospels would have been a very shy and discreet forger not to make that boast. Anyway, so therefore, Tremontant concluded that even the Gospel of John, according to John, which is the latest of the Gospels, uh, cannot have been written after 70 AD. Carmignac also explains some rather nonsensical um, passages in the Gospels. For instance, in Mark 5.13, there is a reference to a herd of 2,000 pigs. Those are the swine that were... Um, the, uh, when Jesus exorcised the demoniac, he cast the demons who were legion into herds of swine who then ran into the sea. And um, in Mark's Gospel, the, uh, the Greek says that, the, um, that it was 2,000 pigs that ran into the sea. Now, you can't have a herd of 2,000 pigs, number one. And number two, it's pretty deserty and the grass is very sparse. You just would not have had a herd of 2,000 pigs, even if herds of 2,000 pigs existed. However, in Hebrew, only consonants are written down. There are no vowels written down. And without the vowels, the word for 2,000 is exactly the same as to say um, to say herds so um, so uh, it's very logical that the underlying Hebrew said herds of pigs cast themselves into the sea and when the person translating it from Hebrew into Greek saw that word written he took it to be 
another word which would have been spelled the same way, which means 2000. Um, anyway, okay. Uh, Father Carmignac gives many, many, many uh, more examples, and as I have time, I will mention others. Um, I just uh, mention a couple of really fun ones. Um, the the uh, there are many little little details in the Gospels which would have been known to people at the time of Jesus who lived in the place where Jesus lived, but would not have been known by people a hundred years later who lived elsewhere. And by the way, there were no no Jews or um, Christians living in um, you know around Jerusalem a hundred years later. That's for sure. So um, there, are, there are all these passages in the Gospels which reflect really precise local contemporaneous knowledge. Okay, for instance, I'll just give a few lists of these and then I will take a short break. And by the way, despite the fact that I'm talking a mile a minute, this is a call-in show. It is a live call-in show. And if there are any callers, any people who wish to call in, the number here is uh, 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y. And in a couple of minutes, I'll take a short musical break, and that's an excellent time to call, because then coming out of the break, I'll, I can just go to the call board. Anyway, so I'll just give a couple of examples. In 1968, archaeologists commissioned by the Israeli government ex excavated north of Jerusalem the remains of a young man five and a half feet tall, dating from the first century, who had been crucified and whose tibia had been broken. In other words, whose legs had been broken. He was crucified and his legs had been broken. Just like the Gospels say that Jesus was crucified and then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the other crucified men so they would die more quickly. That's one uh, local historical fact that it's unlikely that people would have known a hundred years later in Rome or something, or, or who knows where. Number two, a stone found just a few years ago was found um, in the remains, well, notifying non-Jews that they were not allowed inside the temple reserved to the Jews. Now that stone that told non-Jews they were not allowed inside the temple, part of the temple reserved for the Jews, was written in three languages, Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, just like the inscription above the cross was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. And finally, a family grave dating back to Jesus' time was uncovered in a graveyard where leading citizens were buried. It contained the remains of a certain Simon of Cyrene's parents. Okay? Big coincidences. Now, um, let me see if I'm going to continue here. Oh, yeah, this is the last one. No, I'll do two more. I can't resist. I can't resist. There are two more of these archaeological proofs, so to speak, or, or specific local knowledge proofs that the Gospels were written by the people who, for the first 1,800 years of the church, everyone assumed had written them and had been attested to from the very first centuries to have written them. So anyway, here goes. Um, 
when Pilate speaks Greek in St. John's Gospel, St. John's Gospel is written in Greek, right? And Pilate is speaking uh, Greek in the Gospel, but he's okay. But remember, Pilate's not a native Greek speaker. He is he is a Roman. He's a native Latin speaker. When he speaks Greek in St. John's Gospel, he speaks it as a foreigner, making mistakes and Latinisms. In other words turns a phrase that were correct in Latin but not in Greek, whereas the remainder of St. John's Gospel is grammatically perfect Greek. Who would have remembered this long after the facts? In other words, in other words, whoever wrote St. John's Gospel knew that when Pilate was speaking in Greek, he made mistakes in the Greek because he wasn't that good at Greek. Um, uh, anyway on another matter and this is the last one that I'll I'll mention before the break St. Mark's Gospel tells us that Jesus during the storm he was about to calm was inside the stern of the boat sleeping on a cushion now of course in the English translations very often they, they gloss over these awkward turns of phrase so to speak because they want to make it sound correct But the Greek says not that Jesus was at the stern of the boat sleeping on a cushion, but he was inside the stern of of the boat sleeping on the cushion. This wouldn't make much sense until very recently when in 1986 the wreck of a boat of Jesus' time was found in the Sea of Galilee. And on its rear deck there was a covered shelter in which a man could lie. In other words, this 2,000-year-old boat that was found in the Sea of Galilee had a covered deck on the stern that you could lie inside of and sleep on a cushion. Now, who would have known that if they weren't around at the time of Jesus? Because um, even if they were, you know, Jews in Rome 100 years later, they, I mean, the whole story of Israel, the whole story of the Jews in Jerusalem and around the Sea of Galilee and so forth, that was ancient history by then. There wouldn't have been any people around who knew what the fishing boats on the Sea of Galilee used to look like. So with that, I'm going to go to a musical break and um, catch my breath and uh, invite you to call, if anyone wishes to call, with comments or questions. Uh, You're listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, with me, your host, Roy Showman, on Radio Maria. And the call-in number here is 866-333-6279, or if you use Skype, it's Radio Maria USA Studio on Skype. And with that, I'll go to the music, and I'll be back in a couple of minutes. Uh, But I will want to make a little caveat. If you call with a question, don't... (laughs) I'll do my best, but I am not a super expert on on what I'm talking about. So, um, you know, my my knowledge in general is a mile wide and two inches deep, so it won't be hard to stump me if you ask a extremely uh, erudite kind of question. You're welcome to ask. You may just 
get the answer. What a good question. I wish I knew. But in any case, if you wish to call 866-333-6279. And now what I'm about to play, by the way, is the Our Father sung in Aramaic. I'm back. Sorry for that glitch. And let me see if uh, if there have been any calls that came in. Um, it looks like there haven't been. So I will simply um, continue with, with what I've been saying. Uh, but I will try to get a little more. Um, I, I know that um, some of what I was describing was pretty complicated to take on the fly just through your ears over the radio. It's, it's much easier, actually, when once reading it in a book, oh, it looks like I do have a call. So I'll interrupt myself and take a call from uh, Greg from California. Are you there, Greg? I am here. Okay, great. Are you Aiden or Greg? Oh, this is Greg. Oh, hi. Okay, great. Did you have a, uh, a question or a comment or a complaint? Uh, no, just a question, a little bit off target per se for your subject. But um, it, when during the Last Supper, Jesus says that he shall never again drink the new wine until he's in heaven, I believe, right? He says he'll never drink then, yeah, the fruit of the vine, yeah. A fruit, okay. Uh, um, which is, I mean, I assumed that was referring to wine, correct? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. And then when he's dying on the cross, uh, they give him a you know a sprig. Of, they take a sprig of hyssop and they soak it in, in the rancid wine, um, and he drinks it. Um, 
I don't. I, I'm just question. Could you shed some light on that for me? I'm really that. <laughs> nope, <laughs> I can't. I'm sorry. Uh, it's a good question. Oh. I, I warned. I warned the, you guys, right? That it's easy to stump me. Um, I know that's. I know what Scott Hahn says about it. I've read different things uh, about whether you know it was vinegar or it was wine. Um, I've I've heard a number of theories, but I am not either expert or sufficiently overwhelmingly convinced of one theory versus another to to wish to stick my neck out. Uh, okay. Well, I'm glad I'm, glad I'm not the only one. Yeah, that's Thank right. Uh, Scott Hahn, um, he, he, has a, he has a talk that you can find on the internet called The Fourth Cup, The Fourth Cup, which is all about exactly that a saying of Jesus at oh. the Last Supper that he won't drink the fruit of the vine again until he drinks it new in the kingdom. So you could do a lot worse than... Uh, he also, I think, has a may even have a book called The Fourth Cup. You do a lot worse than seeing what Scott Hahn has to say. Wonderful. Oh, thank you so much. Appreciate sure. it. Uh, and then uh, we have a second caller, I think, Aiden. Oh, hello? Hello? Yeah? Did you have a question oh, or a comment? Okay. I, yeah. yeah, I do. Um, I sent you an email a while ago, so I just want to say thank you, and I do, I do have a question, if that's okay. Sure, well, sure. Um, so, like, I just applied to Franciscan, and before I applied, I was doing, like, a lot of research on it, and I, like, I heard of, like, the, uh, the, um, ring by spring thing, like, the culture, like, they put a lot of emphasis on marriage, and I thought that was really weird, because I'm, I'm coming from more of like a secular background, so I thought that was really it was really different because I, that's from a secular background, I, I've never heard of that. Um, what do you mean they they put a lot of emphasis on marriage? Yeah, like um, like to get married like before they graduate, uh, like when they attend. I don't know if you've heard about that. So like, so that's you found that weird. I, I'll tell you why I think. Um, I mean, I, why they do that. I, I don't know so much about. Secular background, I guess. Um, I just haven't heard of that before. Well, my wife teaches at Ave Maria, which is a similarly Catholic university, and uh, one of the reasons that uh, I think they do that is because it is a pool of very serious Catholics who take their faith very seriously. I mean, probably. You know, 90% of the students at, at uh, Steubenville are no-holds-barred Catholics. They may be traditionalists, they may be charismatics, but yeah. they're serious Catholics. At Ave Maria, almost all of the students who aren't there for the sports, which is another problem, are there because they want a seriously Catholic environment. So it's, an, it's a tremendous pool from which to find a spouse, and... It allows one to get to know other students fairly well before you start, you know, dating or taking somebody seriously. Once you're out in the world, I mean, where are you going? I mean, where can you go where more than like 5% of the people are serious Catholics or 10% of the people are serious Catholics? Yeah. Especially around the right age. Yeah. I mean, you go to my parish, there are plenty of serious Catholics, but very few are under 65. Yeah, I noticed that when I go to church, I'm the only kid there. Yeah. So. Um, but so, oh, yeah. So, 
But I also heard there's like a problem where there, there, there I guess like there's not much dating because I guess they, they're like scared to ask girls out. Is, is there like a reason why that is? No, I don't. I don't know about that. Um, although I will say, it's always a good policy to have um, a way of getting to know members of the opposite sex um, outside of a dating relationship, before a dating relationship, if you see what I mean. Because a dating relationship kind of by definition puts a lot of pressure on and a lot of expectations and so forth. Yeah, okay. I was just kind of, it was just, I had never heard of that before because from like a secular background, mm -hmm. like most people just go to college to like get a degree. Like I think if they meet someone they want to marry there, that's like more, that's kind of like in the back of their mind. It's not like a, you know what I mean? Well, like you're a guy. I, I assume you're a guy. <laughs> I know you're a guy. Yeah. Uh, you're a guy. So, you know, if you meet somebody 10 years after college, it's not so bad. But, half the students there are women and being serious Catholics many of them are probably looking forward to starting a family and so if they meet a guy 10 years out of college they're already in a less ideal situation okay yeah that makes a lot of sense I heard there's I heard women typically don't want to I guess date someone who with I guess they. I think I read a study saying that women like to date men with at least like the same educational background, if not higher. So it seems like this is a small. I guess a small group of men they would be interested in, or like. Well, be, I'm sorry. I guess I, I think you called the wrong show for dating advice. So, with your with your forbearance, I'm going to go back to uh, the history of the oh, Gospels, if you don't mind. I went a little off topic. I was. Just, <laughs> I was really. I just never heard of this before. Okay, no problem, but let me get back thank to you, the you. Gospels. Right, thank you. you. Thanks for the call. Um, okay, now uh, I am kind of running out of time, so I'm going to go to very early church fathers, um, some of them apostolic fathers, who know when the Gospels were written or make reference to when the Gospels were written. So I think this is more or less uh, chronological order. Irenaeus, who was the uh, bishop of Lyon, and in uh, around 180 AD, he said the following, Matthew published a scripture, which is a gospel for the Hebrews in their own language, while Peter and Paul were evangelizing at Rome and founding the church. Okay, so Irenaeus um, says that the gospel according to Matthew was written in Hebrew, um, while he was still, while Matthew was still in Palestine, and while Peter and Paul were evangelizing at Rome, so that pretty much dates it. Um, then, um, then uh, Pontanus um, is uh, actually he was um, uh, he he went to the Indies. He went to India. And that's, this sounds pretty bizarre, but there is evidence that uh, Christianity spread to India uh, in, during the lives of the apostles. So anyway, pa pa Pantanus went to India, and he found that before he arrived in India, the Gospel of Matthew was present among the inhabitants of the land, and that um, 
because Bartholomew, one of the apostles, had been there preaching, and he left them the work of Matthew in Hebrew. In Hebrew. Uh, and then, um, uh, where is... Uh, the, well, the f- most famous is St. Jerome. Let me see if I can quickly find... Well, I, maybe I can't even find St. Jerome, so I, I'll skip St. Jerome for now. Clement of Alexandria, who was born about 150 A.D., he wrote the following. As for Mark, then during Peter's stay in Rome, he wrote an account of the Lord's doings, not telling them all, but selecting those he thought most useful for increasing the faith of those who were being instructed. So here we have St. Clement of Alexandria saying that during Peter's stay in Rome, which means before Peter's crucifixion, of course, Mark was in Rome and wrote an account of the Lord's doings. Um, And then Origen, who was born in 185 A.D., Um, He wrote the following, As I have learned by tradition concerning the four Gospels, which alone are unquestionable in the Church of God under heaven, the first written was that according to Matthew, who was once a tax collector but afterwards an apostle of Jesus Christ, who published it for those who came to believe from Judaism, composed as it was in the Hebrew language. The second Gospel is that according to Mark, who wrote it in accordance with Peter's instructions. And then um, Eusebius, who uh, wrote the Ecclesiastical History, about 300 AD, wrote, Matthew had first preached to Hebrews, and when he was on the point of going to others, he transmitted in writing, in his native language, the gospel according to himself, and thus supplied by writing the lack of his own presence to those to whom he was sent. About And now I'm, that's the end of the quote from Eusebius. About 20 other later patristic testimonies, among which are those of St. Epiph- Epiphanius and St. Jerome, affirm that Matthew had written his gospel in Hebrew. So there is plenty, plenty, plenty of evidence that... Um, that the uh, Gospels were written in Hebrew, some think in Aramaic, and that they were written in the lives, during the life, by people who were around in, during the life of Jesus and written shortly after the crucifixion. In fact, the dating of the Gospels I have here. Now, this is from a church council. Let me find the, the dating. Um, hmm. oh, uh, uh, um, always happens. So, uh, here it is. Okay, so there was a church council granted that it was in the ninth, uh, it was in the ninth century, it was in 836, but um, they were referring to older documents in that council, 
And that they said that the St. Matthew's Gospel was written eight years after the ascension of the Lord. So that's about 40 AD, eight years after the crucifixion. St. Mark's 11 years after the crucifixion. St. Luke's 15 years. And St. John's 32 years after the crucifixion. So St. John's would have been the last written and would have been written about, what's that, about 62 to 65 AD. Um, so that is really the bottom line. That's really the bottom line. Now, the um, uh, the mm, it gets very difficult to explain. Um, uh, let me think of. Uh, I'm not going to try to explain the the philological evidence in three minutes for the Gospels having been written in Hebrew rather than in Aramaic. I will quote Father René Laurentin, who is a tremendously um, prestigious Catholic scholar. Um, he considers that the best possible solution to problems with the structure and theology of Luke is the recognition of these chapters as the translation from Hebrew and not from Aramaic. He uncovers frequent Hebraic allusions which are Hebraicisms of composition, but not of, uh, but not, in other words, they're reflections of Hebrew in the composition, not reflections of Aramaic in the composition. In other words, they're like stylistic elements that you find in Hebrew in the composition, which don't exist in, um, in Aramaic. And, um, uh, Pinchas Lapide, who is, was an Israeli scholar uh, and the director of the government press office in Jerusalem and a professor, uh, he, is actually the, he actually wrote a very positive book about Pius XII, by the way, but I'm not here to talk about that. Um, he wrote a number of uh, publications such as Hidden Hebrew in the Gospels and so forth. And he uh, wrote, quote, There is a goodly number of further hidden Hebraicisms lurking within the web of the synoptic texture. Anyway, I could go on and on and on and on, but um, I have come to the end of the hour. So I have been drawing largely from a book called The Birth of the Synoptics, but I think you've gotten a flavor. I, I, I think I've been able to convey the, the purpose of why I've been doing this. And, and remember, remember when you hear the Gospels read in church, right, every Sunday, maybe even more often than that. You're hearing them read in English. Uh, the tendency is to think that they're translations from the Greek. But think of what it would feel like if you realized they were translations from the Hebrew. Because the people who wrote the Gospels wrote in Hebrew. The people who witnessed the life of Jesus were Jews who were speaking Hebrew, writing Hebrew. The accounts of Jesus' life and death were originally all in Hebrew because the church is post-Messianic Judaism. The church is the continuation of Judaism, the transformation of Judaism after the coming of the Jewish Messiah. So what is more logical and almost inevitable that the sacred scriptures of the Old Testament should be written in Hebrew and the sacred scriptures of the New Testament reflecting their Hebrew-speaking Messiah Jesus should also have been originally written in Hebrew. So with that, I've come to the end of my time. You've been listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria with me, your host. 
Roy Shoman. Uh, I hope even if you didn't follow all of the logic of all of the um, uh, Semeticisms in the Gospels, you follow the, the, the theme, which is there's no need to believe the modernist, dismissive, rationalist poo-pooing of the truth of the faith. The, the science supports the truth of the faith. Science does not contradict the truth of the faith. That is the case if you're looking at evolution. That's the case if you're looking at the Shroud of Turin. That's the case if you're looking at the description of the crucifixion and the real medical science under crucifixion. And it's the truth if you're looking at the history of the Gospels. We have nothing to be, uh, I mean, there is no contradiction between science, historical evidence, archaeology, linguistics, philology, and the traditional truths of the faith. So with that, it's time to say goodbye, and consistent with the theme of the show, I'm going to go out playing once again the Our Father sung beautifully in Aramaic. This is Roy Shoman saying goodbye for now. I hope you join me again next week, same time, same place. Oh